Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 18, but before we jump back into chapter 18, I just wanted to comment ever so briefly into what we just did. (laughs) We opened up with the Our Father. Now, I know we spent a number of days, several months back, exploring the articles of the Our Father, but I want to just go back here for a second and, and remind you, and, and at the same time, I'm, I'm reminding myself of the importance of opening up what we do with prayer, just not the Our Father, but whatever prayer we choose to pray, that everything we do is centered in prayer, that indeed we invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit, that what we do might have the heart and mind of the Holy Spirit, lest we kind of fall off task. So this is very important to, again, just not Seeds of Truth Radio, but all that we do all the time, that it is centered in Christ, centered in the presence of the Holy Spirit, centered in prayer, as we've talked about it before, prayer defined as conversation with God. Because, my dear friends, what we do here on Seeds of Truth in reflecting into the book of Revelation is very much a conversation with God, right? Because it is the Holy Spirit that inspired John to write down the things that he saw. Consequently, we are having a conversation with God, having a conversation with the Holy Spirit, and in and through that conversation, we are going to see what God wants us to see. There is something that is always so powerful about reading the biblical text, and that is its power to transcend any one particular age. I know a couple of you made a comment about yesterday's program and how, you know, we went into this reflection about how 2,000 years after the text was written, we are still challenged by its message. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit transcends time, right? And so by invoking the presence of the Holy Spirit in prayer, we enter into that conversation of how the Holy Spirit transcends time. And this is quintessential to the Christian and Catholic vocation as we go deeper and deeper in our faith. God meets us exactly where we are and walks with us exactly as He is. And in so doing, He reveals to us exactly what His merciful love is all about. And so we allow God to take our hand and we journey with Him. But we can only journey with Him. We can only do what we ought to do in the light of that very, just not formal conversation with Him, but also informal conversation with him, where we just talk to him throughout our day. And so this, again, is very important as we invoke the Holy Spirit, as we do each and every evening as we start our programming, because it is my hope and my prayer that indeed what we talk about here is something that is very much rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ and always in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the great gift that he gave to us at Pentecost, of course. Okay, now, yesterday I was talking about how 
Today's age uh, very much reflects Babylon. It is so easy to recognize Babylon in our current economic system today when advertising overtly appears to lust or greed, or when immoral products are bought and sold, as in the drug trade or internet pornography and, and human trafficking. What is harder to see and harder to combat, and this is what I want to touch upon here, is the way the world economic system involves those who buy or sell goods in the exploitation of the poor. Yesterday, I touched upon the poor, but what does that mean within the larger context of today's economic system? How much of the clothing and electronic products that we buy is produced in, in sweatshops and in distant countries? How much of the, the coffee or the fruits and vegetables that we consume is planted and harvested by people who live at or below subsistence level and are forced to work under harsh conditions? I mean, if corporations operate with profit as their sole motive and criterion of success, sooner or later they will abuse those who produce their goods, their customers, society, or even in some cases the environment. My dear friends, what lies at the heart of every action of social justice is what? The dignity of the human person. The dignity of the human person is the first precept. Now, on the front of pro-life, certainly we defend life. And life itself, within the context of abortion, is foundational to what social justice is all about. But it also reaches into every aspect of who we are and what we do. That is, the dignity of the human person. And so, if our current economic system is not taking stock into the importance of the dignity of the human person, then where are we headed? You know, certainly our current Pope is railing against this, railing against this crony capitalism. And a lot of people are under the impression that uh, Pope Francis is anti-capitalism. If you read him closely, that is untrue. What he's against, essentially, is this capitalism which does not regard the dignity of the human person. He understands well in coming and hailing from Argentina that when profit is our sole governing purpose, it can exclude the dignity of the human person. So we need to be present to this closely. I mean, Catholics who, who own, invest, or work in corporations need to work together with other people of goodwill to give proper place to this very thing that we are talking about, human dignity. And we can also include certainly the common good, principles, the larger principles of social justice, and consideration of the poor while engaged in the legitimate effort to run a profitable business. Be rest assured, my friends, the Catholic Church looks at the free market as a good thing, because it ought to draw out all of those principles, social principles, that are good in of themselves. Drawing out the best version of who God is calling us to be, because the free market challenges us to become essentially the person we are called to be. If we slip into this kind of slothfulness or, or laziness, 
and we are no longer partakers in the free market, then ultimately we isolate ourselves. So that the free market supply and demand, these things are, are good things for sure. And um, the Catholic Church, and I know most Christian churches, of course, affirm this, but at the cost of losing our sense of what the dignity of the human person is all about? Never. And so we need to always keep this before us. What does 1 Timothy 5 verse 22 say? Do not share in another's sins. Keep yourself pure. Christian consumers need to pay close attention to the ethical practices of the companies with whom they do business so as to avoid participating in any injustices or essentially promoting values and lifestyles that, that are contrary to God's Word. So just an opening reflection as it relates to how we not only think about the poor, but specifically the poor within the larger economic system. You know, as John Paul II uh, rightly affirmed, and, and Benedict XVI rightly affirmed, uh, the Catholic Church is not opposed to the free market. In fact, it again affirms it. But there is another question behind it, one that certainly Pope Francis is drawing out. Are we losing our sense of the dignity of the human person? This is a very important question to ask. All right, that being said, let us turn our attention back to the book of Revelation. And I believe we left off in verse 8, so we'll pick up with verse 9, Revelation chapter 18, verses 9 to 10. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and were wanton with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, thou great city, thou mighty city, Babylon, and one hour has thy judgment come. Mm. Now, if you were to draw out who these various groups are, in chapter 18, there are three groups that mourn the destruction of the city. We read about one of them in verse 9, the kings. In verse 11, we will read about the merchants. And in verse 17, we will read about the sailors. The description of the three groups parallel each other. They each mourn over the fall of the city. Uh, they each stand far off as they watch. All three begin their lament saying, what? Alas, alas. Also, the three groups mention that the city is destroyed in, what? One hour. Although each group mourns at the sight of the harlot's judgment, they cry, not necessarily because of the city, but because of the negative effects its destruction has on them, right? They are crying for themselves. This is the opposite of the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. What Jesus is talking about there is, yes, blessed are those who weep and who are in solidarity for those who weep when they lose a loved one. Yes, that's true. But moreover, blessed are those who mourn within the context of the person who is grieving man's earthly plight. Essentially, to see another person sinning and to grieve the sin that person is blessed. What we have here in this passage is the exact opposite of that. We grieve because we no longer have the context that we had to sin, right? The opposite of the beatitude. They cry for themselves. 
This is manifest in the lament of the kings of the earth who weep because they have now lost the one with whom they committed what but fornication. They must now go and search for another who will indulge their perverted appetites. They don't pity her and try to help her. Rather, they stand far off for fear that they will be judged as well and watch as she burns. Okay, how about verse 11? And we'll read through verse 17, 17a. So the first half of verse 17. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which thy soul longed has gone from thee, and all thy dainties and thy splendor are lost to thee, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off, there it is again, in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, bedecked with gold, with jewels and with pearls. In one hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Mm. You know, as the lament of the kings was motivated by selfishness, so too are the cries of the merchants. They mourn because there is no one left to buy their goods. The destruction of the city hits these merchants right to the core in their pocketbooks, right? Since they lose their, their best customer, they cry because they lose money. The list of the goods that were sold is partly based on those included in Ezekiel's condemnation of Tyre, the condemnation we touched upon yesterday evening. The list, interestingly, climaxes with the trading of human souls, indicating Jerusalem's involvement in spiritual slavery. One is reminded of Paul's words from chapter 4, verses 25 to 26. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, is free, and she is our mother. Now, those earthly things for which Jerusalem traded its soul will be taken away from her. Why does Jesus put such an emphasis on trust? And why does our Lord precede his sermon on trust with this calling out of our trust in money? You know, on six separate occasions in his sermon on trust, he calls us not to be anxious, not to worry, not to be preoccupied, but trust in his heavenly Father. That sermon was set up by his condemnation of our trust in money. It's in the word that we translate for mammon. The Hebrew, while it speaks to wealth and money, better translates as trust in money. So you see, he wants to juxtapose those two things. Do you trust money more than you trust my heavenly Father? Do you trust Babylon more than you trust the new Jerusalem? 
Again, that is what is at the heart of that Sermon on Trust. Okay, how about chapter 18, the second half of verse 17 through 19. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. In one hour she has been laid waste. Here we have the last group, the sailors, mourning at the fall of Babylon because why all who had ships at sea grew rich by her. (laughs) They put ashes on their heads, not because of true repentance, but because out of self-pity, much like the merchants. Like the merchants, they cry because they lose what but money. Again, John seems to draw from Ezekiel's imagery. Ezekiel also speaks of sailors placing ashes on their heads at the fall of Tyre. This is what we see in Ezekiel chapter 27, verses 28 to 33. We continue to see the marvelous symmetry between the old and new. And as I noted yesterday evening, it's always important when you see an Old Testament footnote in the New Testament to go back into the Old Testament if you really want to understand and appreciate the context to which the New Testament author is writing, go back into the Old Testament. You'll find its context. And to this verse, you will see Ezekiel chapter 27, verses 28 to 33. And so when you go there, it prompts all sorts of new questions. And then the study becomes that much more rich and and that much more exciting. All right. How about verses 20 to 24? Rejoice over her, O heaven, O saints and apostles and prophets, For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So shall Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and shall be found no more. And the sound of harpers and minstrels, of flute players and trumpets, shall be heard in thee no more. And a craftsman of any craft shall be found in thee no more. And the sound of the millstone shall be heard in thee no more. And the light of a lamp shall shine in thee no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall be heard in thee no more. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and all nations were deceived by thy sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. Wow. The prophets and saints, my friends, rejoice at the destruction of the city that killed them. Huh? <laughs> God has avenged their blood as he promised back in, what was it, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Jesus has promised that Jerusalem would finally be held accountable for the blood of all the prophets killed. There is now finally fulfilled the image of the city being cast like a millstone into the sea recalls John's description of a mountain cast into the sea in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. Does this not depict Christ's warning in in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 2? What do we read there? Temptations to sin are sure to come, 
but woe to him by whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. John takes this imagery from Jesus himself and applies it to who and what but Jerusalem. So then, because the city seduced the nations as a harlot and led them into sin by its scandalous conduct, it is cast into the sea like a millstone. Peter Williamson notes in his commentary, it is striking how Revelation's Lord depiction of Babylon fits the, the sordid underbelly of international trade in our day. I, I, I love that phrase, the sordid underbelly of international trade in our day. I mean, besides importing luxuries, those who live in the wealthiest nations import vast quantities of what? But illegal drugs that entrap millions in addiction and corrupt hundreds of thousands who produce them, who transport them, and to sell this contraband. How about pornography? Pornography and the sex trade are absolutely colossal industries, raking in billions of dollars annually, enslaving users spiritually, and often literally enslaving women and children for sex trafficking. Slavery of all kinds is making an unfortunate comeback, in part to satisfy the rapacious desire of world markets for goods at low prices. Peter Williamson notes that according to the Australian nonprofit Walk Free organization, walkfree.org, as of 2013, nearly 30 million people, 30 million people worldwide were living in what? Slavery. Brothers and sisters, these evils should move us to pray for the destruction of today's Babylon that it would be destroyed, stamped out, so that the kingdom of God might be ushered in, that we might see God for who he is. This discussion on pornography has me going back to previous reflections and one particular encounter. You know, a few years ago, I found myself in an interesting situation when flying back from Oxford, England. On my left was a young man reading a pornographic magazine, and on my right was an older gentleman who wanted to, well, talk about God. And I could not help but think that this moment was ordained by God as an opportunity to talk about not only the Catholic faith to one of them, but both of them. And I did. <laughs> to make a long story short, the discussion was dominated by the topic of certainly sexuality and the question, what is sex if not for pleasure? By the end of the plane trip, we all parted ways with a deeper understanding of, at least I hope, our human sexuality. Uh, what were a few of the things we talked about? Well, it's, it's interesting. For me, as you know, I like to start with what certain words mean. Uh, what does the word pornography mean? Well, the Greek rendering translates literally the writing of harlots. What have we been talking about Babylon as? A whore, a harlot. Pornography is the writing of harlots. The Catechism in paragraph 2354 defines pornography as that which consists in removing real or simulated acts from the intimacy of partners 
in order to display them deliberately to third parties. So when our bodies are used for acts that are separate from their intended purpose to bring about the unitive and procreative purposes of God, that is babies and bonding, as one Janet Smith likes to call it, they have no merit. They have no purpose. We must remember that Satan is the father of all lies. He does not want us to see that the sexual urge can be used to foster authentic love. And so what does he do? He busies himself around the clock, hijacking from our personal and collective consciousness the understanding of the body's potential to give glory to God. The pornography industry, my friends, thrives on the selfish use of persons, which ultimately causes great harm to the dignity of its participants and the sanctity of ultimately the conjugal act in married love. Pornography is so pervasive in our culture. And certainly this is what Peter Williamson just touched upon. One particular study from Covenant Eyes in 2014 found that at least 90% of boys have been exposed to internet pornography before the age of 18. Google reports that one out of every five of their search hits on mobile devices are for what but pornography. While young men make up the largest body of pornography users, Covenant Eyes interestingly reports that this is a problem that touches both genders and every age demographic. In the end, a careful examination of these facts reveals that, brothers and sisters, we have a problem, that we are gradually morphing from a culture with a pornography problem to a culture that has enshrined pornography. I watched an interview with a young lady by the name of uh, Brittany Ruiz. She was a former star of the adult film industry. She spoke openly about her desire as a teenager to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous. And one day she got her chance to hit it big. But her opportunity in Hollywood came about shooting what? But adult films on a daily basis. And as she would talk about it on some days, twice a day. She was indeed living the lifestyle of the rich and famous, traveling the world. But Brittany became addicted to crack and heroin as she would attempt to dull her senses from what she was experiencing every day. And in this interview I was watching, she, she described it this way. I was starting to feel plastic like a Barbie doll. Brittany said, fortunately, she encountered a Christian outreach group ministering to those who were involved in the adult film industry. And while it took her several months, eventually she experienced the love of Christ in her life. And she has since renounced her life as a porn star. She now travels the country telling of her conversion story and exposing the many lies that drive the pornography industry. Her testimony is a great reminder that just as we are made to use things and love people, we now love things and use people. She wants us to be centered in this truth. She wants us to understand that the contemporary Babylon has no real concern for your soul, as certainly the pornography industry had no concern for her. Remember what pornography means, the writing of harlots. We are a contemporary Babylon to the degree that we enshrine pornography. And so we wrap up this evening's reflection with the help of one Brittany Ruiz to remind us 
what's essential versus non-essential. And that we need to put on the armor of God and overcome the temptations that flood our mind and heart each and every day. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.